The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The terminology has been criticized as being stigmatizing and as using non-person-centered language. This documentation can shape a health professionals' attitudes. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Thanks for joining us. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Retiring Against Medical Advice Discharge. It appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine in November of 2022. Joining me on the podcast is the first author, Dr. Kleinman, who is a clinician scientist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. We hope you learn much in this discussion. Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was really fascinated by your ideas and opinion piece that reminded me that the term against medical advice can have unintended negative consequences. And so I know you've thought about this more than I have. Maybe you could talk about why you wrote the piece and why that term is one that we ought to try to retire. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Center. Using met- against medical advice to describe discharges is problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, the terminology has been criticized as being stigmatizing and as using non-person-centered language. In particular, when we think about clinical documentation around AMA discharges, this documentation can shape uh, health professionals' attitudes about patients and clinical decision-making. It's often documented in charts that patients have a history of multiple AMA discharges. And this type of documentation can make patients seem difficult or irresponsible. Beyond that, the terminology places a lot of responsibility for the discharge on patients themselves. uh, And it neglects other factors, such as clinician attitudes and health system policies that can contribute to these discharges. And many other factors go into these decisions, like undertreated withdrawal, undertreated pain, an inability to smoke on smoke-free hospital campuses, stigma and discrimination that patients can experience when coming into hospital settings, and reminders of past incarceration that can occur inside hospitals. Beyond that, the AMA designation and the against medical advice designation actually describes an antagonistic interaction between patients and clinicians rather than encouraging a more collaborative approach to promoting patient health when these situations arise. It's useful for a moment to consider where the AMA term comes from. The term is in many ways an anachronism from a different era of medical practice. I've seen the term used as far back as 1897 in a Lancet article, 
and it in a different context, albeit. And the term is starts to be used to describe discharges by the 1920s in, in published articles. And so this term is really coming from an era before we had our modern understanding of the patient-physician relationship, patient-centered practice, and an informed consent. And it doesn't really reflect the patient-centered care that we all strive to provide. I know that there are forms that most of the hospitals have ever worked with called AMA forms. Is this common? What's the extent of this problem? Is this uh, everywhere? You're in Canada. I'm in the U.S. Is it this in the U.S.? Is it also in Canada? Is it in Mexico? Is it in England? So I can certainly speak to the U.S. and Canada, and it, it is certainly common in the U.S. and in Canada. U.S. data would suggest that there were over 500,000 discharges from American hospitals that were designated as AMA in 2019. And this is 1.4% of all discharges from U.S. hospitals. And those proportions increase among individuals who are facing socioeconomic disadvantages. Those rates are 2.6% among people who have Medicaid covering a hospital admission, and they're 4.3% among people without insurance coverage for admission. And they go even higher among individuals who have substance-related admissions. Uh, so among people with alcohol use disorder in the U.S., 10.6% uh, of admissions end with an AMA discharge. Uh, and among individuals with opioid-related admissions, uh, up to 18% of discharges end with an AMA designation. I'm going to challenge you just a little bit uh, because I just finished a stint on the wards. And we had a patient who would come in. He had opioid use disorder. He'd come in hoping to get delauded. And if he didn't get delauded, he just left. He didn't sign any paperwork. He just left. And so the hospital writes down that he uh, left against medical advice. So it seems like there's two different problems. One is you're having a conversation with the patient. They insist on going home. You're nervous. So you make them sign a form. And other people just elope. How do we reconcile those two types of uh, discharges that are titled against medical advice? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that we're, we're hoping to do is we're hoping to decrease the situations where patients where patients feel like their needs in the hospital aren't getting met. I can't speak to any specific example, of course, but certainly in, in, in my practice, there's a number of patients who present to hospital experiencing opioid withdrawal. And we've tried to develop protocols to uh, reduce the likelihood that individuals will experience severe opioid withdrawal, including more rapid OAT initiations and using short-acting opioids in the hospital to actually reduce uh, opioid withdrawal symptoms. And for a number of, of reasons. Around a discharge, there are some discharges that may not need a designation at all as to whether it's AMA or BMA or another term for it. Uh, there are some discharges that may be within acceptable medical practice and maybe within an acceptable option for patients and so may not need any special designation beyond the informed consent process. But for discharges that do require some designation or are uh, outside of what would be considered acceptable medical practice, having a designation can be helpful uh, to communicate that information to, to future clinicians so that steps can be taken to, to address the, the factors that led to the early discharge. Does this have anything to do with hospital policies or is this physician driven or is administrative driven or nursing driven? Yeah, so I think there's a there's both things that individual clinicians can do and things that hospitals can do as well. Hospitals can design order sets and policies that 
ensure that patients' needs are being better met when they come into the hospital. To the extent that undertreated withdrawal symptoms and undertreated pain can drive early discharges or before medically advised discharges, there is often a capacity for improvement at the hospital level. There's also the potential to improve training modules around these BMA discharges to enhance collaborative, to enhance the use of collaborative language and planning around these discharges, uh, such that there is more of a focus on planning and ensuring that patients have the necessary prescriptions and discharge medications uh, and discharge supplies, and that individuals feel welcome returning to the hospital and, and moving away from a focus just on forms that, that individuals must sign with the hospital. So I've tried to do that uh, with a number of patients over the last several years after reading some other things ab- about the concept of trying to avoid against medical advice. And with many patients, they have an urgency to leave for social reasons. And so what I've tried to do is work around, let them know that if if uh, their symptoms get worse, they can come back in, arrange an outpatient visit in the short period so that they can be followed up. And I think we can totally avoid the any nomenclature by understanding what's wrong with the patient. Maybe you could expand on that because I think you you talk about that in the piece. Yeah, so th- there's a number of situations where any nomenclature can be avoided uh, whatsoever. We do think there are some instances when it's helpful to have some nomenclature, particularly in clinical documentation. Uh, and the rationale for this, for this is that it can be helpful for future clinicians to understand that the patient's needs were not being fully met while they were hospitalized. And so there can be a collaborative engagement with the patient when they return to hospital of ways to improve the hospitalization and the hospital experience. That being said, at the time of discharge, designating the discharge as AMA or BMA doesn't enhance the patient's experience or the patient care once they are to leave the hospital. And at the time of discharge, it's really important that there's an informed consent process. The patient both understands and appreciates the risks and benefits of staying in the hospital and other potential treatment options for them. And then any steps that can mitigate the risk of discharge, just as you described, are taken. So arranging a close outpatient follow-up, ensuring that patients really feel welcome returning to the hospital if anything arises, and that they have any necessary education and supplies and medications so that they can have the safest possible care once they leave the hospital. Some physicians would argue that one of the reasons to say against medical advice is to protect them from malpractice suits. And uh, that's obviously much more of a problem in the U.S. than almost anywhere else. Uh, but what, what would you say to them? So it's a good question. Um, and I don't want to comment specifically on 50 U.S. jurisdictions that can potentially have different medical legal um, systems. Uh, and so clinicians should really check with their local uh, legal system to ensure that there isn't anything specific to the AMA designation that's been enshrined in, in, in law or in, in statute. In general, the AMA designation on its own is not always considered protection during a discharge. And it's really the process of informed consent with the patient, ensuring that the patient understands the benefits and risks of both the proposed treatment option and other treatment options. Uh, and that the patient has the, is going to receive the best care, regardless of what their decision is, that are going to be helpful as well in those types of situations. You've uh, referred to BMA, probably ought to define that. 
Uh, I did have uh, an intern recently uh, say that she had started using patient-directed discharge. Talk about those two alternatives and why you prefer one over the other. Yeah, so patient-directed discharge is a term that's uh, recently started to be used to describe analogous situations to AMA discharges. And the patient-directed discharge term has several advantages over the AMA term. It reframes these discharges as a patient-initiated choice rather than something that's against medical advice. And it's less confrontational than the AMA designation. At the same time, we think that the patient-directed discharge term has a couple limitations. So the first is that in some ways it, it places more responsibility for these discharges on the patient alone by reframing it as something that the patient directs rather than recognizing the many factors beyond the patient that contribute to these discharges, like hospital system policies and undertreated withdrawal and pain that can occur within hospital settings. The before medically advised term we think is not confrontational, it's not antagonistic, and it's not judgmental towards patients. It also has the advantage of highlighting that this is still something that's uh, not medically recommended or before or earlier than would occur as medically recommended. And so it does highlight that there's still risks associated with these discharges, like increased 30-day mortality and increased 30-day readmissions. We think that describing something as before medically advised invites curiosity as to why this is happening rather than describing it as against medical advice or a patient-directed discharge. And the natural next question is to understand why and what can be done about these underlying factors that are driving these discharges. The other advantage of describing a discharge as before medically advised is that individuals can and clinicians can readily understand what a before medically advised discharge is, whereas a patient-directed discharge is, is harder to understand based on a literal um, understanding of each word within the term. I've had patients who needed to leave on a certain day because their social security check was coming in the mail and they've lived in a neighborhood where they knew it knew it'd be it would be stolen if they weren't home. And in those situations, I tried to find a workaround for them. Uh, I have not made that uh, against medical advice, but maybe I should say before medically advised, and I sort of like that as an idea. But I want to go back to my patient who elopes on a regular basis. Uh, he comes in. If the emergency room doesn't give him Dilaudid, he will not take any other opiate than Dilaudid. He's he's seeking Dilaudid. That's the only reason he's coming to the hospital. He knows how to get admitted to the hospital because, uh, like many op opioid use disorder patients, he's very sophisticated in how to convince someone to give him what he wants. But then we get to know him, and we know that that's all he's doing, that he's been offered treatment, he's been offered alternative uh, medications, and he just gets mad, and he, he he never signs any papers. He just walks out of the hospital. How do you deal with that situation? Because I don't think that's that unusual. In, in the circumstances that you're describing, is there... Is there a discussion with the patient before they leave the hospital? Is there Are there medically recommended reasons for the individual to stay in the hospital? He comes in often to uh, get help with withdrawal. But if he doesn't get the help he wants, and, and we discuss withdrawal, we have addiction medicine see him, and if he's not happy or he's starting to go through withdrawal, he just leaves. He doesn't talk to anybody. He disappears. But we know he's going to end up back in the emergency department sooner or later. It keeps coming back to the same hospital. That's a really, it's a really hard situation. And my guess is that uh, 
that situation, I've had more than one patient with that situation, so I know it's not unique. And how would you advise documenting that? Those, those are really challenging situations. You know, it's interesting that you bring up that situation. There are certainly other options for opioid use disorder and opioid withdrawal that we can offer in Canada that aren't necessarily within the American, um, that, that aren't allowed within the Controlled Substance Act in the U.S., uh, and so there are all potentially alternative treatment options that, that can sometimes be offered to individuals with, with those circumstances. But in terms of the, the documentation aspect, they, they can be documented as before medically advised discharges, if in fact the discharges are before medically advised, or, or they can be documented in a, a very factual way about what happened and what the nature of the discharge was. But the hospital, the hospital itself, not the physicians, the hospital writes that down as against medical advice. So yes. That's sort of a hospital policy. And, and so that, that's a hospital policy, uh, a, a hospital policy level. Which is a different about, about how to how to designate these discharges. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's something that can be explored to, to change. Right? Yeah. These discharges can be defined in a different way and described in a different way. The times that, that I've worked hard to try to work around using that term is someone who needs to get who needs to get home and take care of a loved one that they're the sole caregiver and they really need to get have a little bit more treatment in the hospital but they'll probably be okay and so I don't want to put any uh thing negative into their chart because they ask very nicely and they explain why they just really need to leave and I think those are the ones that I'm most concerned about is the people who really need to leave for reasons that have nothing to do with their medical care. And it's incumbent upon us, I think, to try to figure out a way to provide them as good medical care as possible without having to stay in the hospital to get it. And I think that's exactly the approach uh, that's been advocated in, in this field. Uh, so there's Dr. Alfandre, who is written several articles about uh, adopting a shared decision-making process uh, with against medical advice discharges or before medically advised discharges. And there's really a process of empathic, empathetically eliciting a patient's values and preferences and ensuring that the care that's provided falls within and is guided by those values and preferences of the patient. That there's often a range of medically acceptable options, even if something isn't necessarily the ideal uh, option from a biomedical standpoint. Incorporating all these other factors into the discussion with the patient can actually reveal that uh, the patient's decision actually is most in keeping with their bodies and preferences. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I think that both reading your article and having this conversation have increased my awareness of doing my best not to have to use against medical advice and to try to minimize even before medically advised, if I can, so that the patient does not have any negative attribute when the next team picks them up that might not be quite as thoughtful about this. But maybe over time, we can get more and more people to think about this in a serious way. And your article really has helped us put us on that track. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion and paper have helped me to think more seriously about the term against medical advice. Both Dr. Kleinman and I hope that you will consider not using that term if at all possible. Discuss with the patient the reason for them wanting to leave and try to develop reasonable, even 
if not optimal, management strategies that allow them to meet their concerns about leaving. They're often due to social issues, economic issues, and family issues. We hope that this discussion has stimulated your thoughts about this concern. It certainly has for me. Thank you for listening. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call 